Ken Fadiman is the author of The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and the Salon Book Award. She has also written two essay collections, At Large and At Small, and Ex Libris, and edited Rereadings, 17 Writers Revisit Books They Love, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the former editor of The American Scholar, Fadiman is the Francis Writer-in-Residence at Yale University. We're here in Brattleboro, Vermont, at the Literary Festival, to talk about her memoir, The Wine Lover's Daughter, about the great Clifton Fadiman. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. I am delighted to be here just like to, it's very short, but I think the first sentence in this book is a killer. So could you just please read it out? My father was a lousy driver and a two-finger typist, but he could open a wine bottle as deftly as any swain ever undressed his lover. That's why I read, you know is to come across great sentences like that. Oh, well, aren't you kind? I probably rewrote that sentence 20 times, reading it aloud every time to make sure the rhythm was right. But I wanted to get my father's erotic relationship with wine. He didn't mm-hmm. just enjoy it as a foodstuff. He adored it like a lover, and I wanted to get that right into the reader's head in the first sentence. Mm-hmm. He also adored women. Yeah. You say. (laughs) Yes, he did. did How did he adore women? Well, let's see. He certainly enjoyed their presence. He preened in front of them. He valued their opinion. I thought he was a male chauvinist pig. Yeah, he valued their opinion of him. He didn't necessarily (laughs) value their opinion of world politics or literature. My mother was a highly intelligent former war correspondent, so he'd made an exception in his choice of spouse, but he was very much a man of his time. Uh, He condescended to women, and in some ways, that made my life easier for me. I think that my older brother, who was also a very fine writer, but from whom much more was expected, uh, was put in a much more stressful position than I was. Eh, I was a girl. I was sort of smart. If I became a writer, wouldn't that be nice? But um, I wasn't necessarily expected to go into the family business. I know no other liquid that placed in the mouth forces one to think, he said. He also had a wine library. He did, yeah. That quote, one of my favorites from him, was from several essays about wine that he wrote. Uh, And his wine library, well, he liked to talk about wine cellars as being wine libraries because he felt very much about a beloved bottle of wine the way he felt about a beloved book. And organizing a library of books, shelving and reshelving, making room for a new one, taking one down, reading it, enjoying it, those so paralleled the feelings that he had about his wine bottles in his cellar. Uh, which he had started amassing in 1935, two years after the end of Prohibition. 
And he really went at it quickly. He did. I discovered, uh, after I started this project, I discovered that I had a folder called, with his handwriting, Wine Memorabilia, that I didn't know that I had. And in it, among other things, were his early cellar books, or the pages that represented those early bottles that he bought, where he bought them, how much they cost, uh, what he thought of them, where he was storing them. And I learned to my absolute amazement that on the first day that he'd started collecting in 1935, he bought more than 900 bottles of wine. But the price, the price was right. It was, it was affordable, right? It really was. Here are some of the prices from when he was first collecting. Uh, let's see. Chateau Aubryon, $1.95. Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, $1.75. Chateau Mouton Rothschild, $2.35. Well, these are three of the five great Bordeaux. And even if you factor in inflation, anybody... Anybody mm. could buy, maybe not 900 bottles, but anybody could afford one of the greatest wines in the world. And these now cost thousands of dollars a bottle. Books were cheap, too. So, I mean, every man could have a great glass of wine and enjoy a great book for uh, That's exactly right. Money. That's exactly right. And if you... Uh, made an upper-middle-class salary, as my father did, and then he started making more and more, you could afford not only a nice glass of wine over a good book, but you could afford quite impressive libraries of both. Mm -hmm. Poor in childhood. Yeah. Uh, lived over drugstores, yes. or a drugstore. His father ran some unsuccessful... Drugstores. Yeah, really? a bunch of drugstores. I mean, never more than one at a time, each yeah. uh, failing, and then you try another one in, in various Brooklyn neighborhoods that now are quite uh, fashionable. My students now live in those neighborhoods because they're cheaper than Manhattan, but back then were viewed as neighborhoods that only immigrants would live in. Mm -hmm. Shared a bed with his two brothers, yeah. uh, went to Boys High in Brooklyn, and would look over the East River at Manhattan and imagine what was going on in those fancy Park Avenue drawing rooms. And he was pretty sure that even though it was prohibition, that the drinking of great wine and the reading of great books was going on. So those were the two things to which he aspired. Yeah, he wanted to kind of get out of poverty pretty badly. Boy, he wanted to get out. He turned his back on Brooklyn and shut the door with a resounding bang. Mm -hmm. He had to live at home sometimes when he was going to Columbia. Sometimes he could afford a dorm, sometimes not. He had a variety of odd jobs, always working about a 40-hour week to make money to put himself through. Sometimes and one, sorry, one of the jobs was running a bookstore at the Penn Station. Yes, that's right. How, what, what's that one all about? Uh, that was a little bookstore, and uh, he, he didn't start the bookstore, but he was hired to manage it. He, the uh, owner rapidly uh, learned that this young collegiate whippersnapper knew more about books than he did. Mm -hmm. um, he had many other weird, odd jobs. In any case, uh, he sometimes had to live at home um, when he couldn't afford to live in a dorm, but he was trying to get away from home 
just as much as possible. And one of the sad results of that was that although for the rest of his life he continued to be very close to his two brothers who also left Brooklyn in the dust. And both uh, did well. And both did well. Um, one as a businessman and the other as a producer in Hollywood. Uh, but he really pretty much all three of them left their parents behind. That is, they sent them checks, but um, although my grandmother had already died when I was born, my paternal grandfather didn't die until I was 10. Mm. I met him once, and for the first eight years of my life, he lived less than two hours from where we lived. My father did not want the two parts of his life to meet, and that has always seemed to me just immeasurably sad. Mm -hmm. Well, he felt the same way about Jewishness. Yes, that was something that he also tried to leave behind. Fatiman was the family's real name. I mean, it wasn't Fatimanowski and didn't have mm -hmm. to be shortened and anglicized like the last names of so many of his friends who were also the sons of Jewish immigrants. Like Irving Wallace. Uh, yes, so Irving Wallace's son, David, uh, and Irving Wallace was a friend of my father's, uh, changed his name back to the original name, which was Wallachinsky. So you had Irving Wallace and his son David Wallachinsky. And my father thought this was just insane. Why would you saddle yourself with a name like Wallachinsky? Had David gone mad? Mm. He simply didn't understand how anyone would be confident enough to make forays into American life, which he believed was still so riddled with anti-Semitism mm. that one had to scrub every vestige that could make people dislike you because you were a Jew. So the name of Wallachinsky, of course, yes, made absolutely no sense. Mm. Uh, but the result was that my brother and I were raised with no religion, no sense of ethnicity, our mother is Gentile, mm -hmm. descended from Mormons, um, and we were supposed to represent the perfectly assimilated, private-schooled, upper-middle-class, um, sidled into uh, the society of those with inherited wealth and no longer had any telltale signs that we'd come from any class other than that. And I think that was a tremendous loss. Mm. Tremendous loss. He cut your roots, as you say. I don't feel I have any at all on his mm. side of the family, and I would be so grateful for them. He studied the Western canon under John Erskine's General Honors Program. Yeah, of Columbia. Of Columbia, mm. and that actually you call the wellspring of the great books movement. That's right. So he was one of the early students of John Erskine, who believed that if his Columbia students could study the great books of the Western canon, all written by dead white Western males, um, hey, wait a minute, there are three white women. Uh, well, <laughs> in my father's lifetime reading plan, which uh, uh, he compiled later, which was a selection of short essays, uh, there were guides to the hundred great books that he thought everybody should read before they died, and many of them came from John Erskine's course. I believe that of those hundred, uh, that 97 were male, and 99 were white, and all were 
Western. Mm -hmm. However, they were genuinely great books, and my father swallowed the notion, hook, line, and sinker, that you would not only surround yourself with great literature, which would help you become a better writer and reader, but that these books would teach you how to live, Mm -hmm. that they had ethical messages, that they had social messages, that they had messages about interpersonal relationships, and that they needed to be not texts that you would study and analyze, but that you needed to think of them as living teachers. Mm. Incorporate them into your lives. Exactly. And one of the most moving kinds of letters that he would get would be from uh, inmates who were Mm. serving life terms in prison, often for murder. They knew they would never get out, and yet they were trying to make something of their lives there. And uh, they had copies of the Lifetime Reading Plan, and one by one, through interlibrary loan, because the prison libraries tended not to have copies of Homer and Dante, Um, but book by book, they were reading those books and they were influencing how they lived their lives in prison. My father wasn't much of a do-gooder, but I always felt that although he hadn't intended his book to be used that way, he ended up doing some tremendous good for those inmates. And not just the inmates. Uh, I mean, I personally was influenced profoundly by that book. Well, it's just so wonderful to hear. It's getting increasingly rare that I meet people who have more than a very vague idea of who my father was. And I admit that if he were still as famous as he was in his heyday, Mm. I could never have written this book because I would have worried that readers might suspect me of trading on his name. I mean, if my last name were Cheever or or Updike, let's say, and I wrote a memoir about my father, were people reading it because of who my father had been? Most likely. Most likely not because they wanted to hear what I had to say. So the fact that my father became less and less famous throughout my life and then has become considerably less famous since his death in 1999 puts me in a way in in an easier position. It's true that if he were still well known, I might have um, might find it easier to find readers for this book. But mm. on the other hand, I wouldn't have. To, I would have to worry about why they'd come to my pages. Because you're you're an Oakling. Uh, yes, um, I'll explain that in a second. You know, if if I. What I ended up doing was feeling that I was trying to keep my father's reputation alive rather than trading on it, which put me in a far more powerful position, having been raised, as you say, an Oakling. So um, if this book accomplishes nothing else, I wanted to make the word Oakling enter Mm -hmm. general usage. So here's how I first encountered the word Oakling. I'd written an essay on the great... English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, Then I'd written another essay about his son Hartley, who was also a good poet, but unfortunately he had the bad luck to be the son of one of the two most famous poets in the world at the time, the other one being big family friend William Wordsworth, who sort of stuck with him around as a kind of surrogate uncle. And Hartley Coleridge published only one book of poems in his lifetime. 
and one of his reviewers said that Hartley did evidence some an inheritance of his father's genius, which at least was a compliment, although of course it implied he had no genius of his own, only genius that he'd inherited. But it also quoted the old adage, the oakling always withers beneath the shadow of the oak. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh my God, I'm an oakling. All my life, I, I was in the shadow of this giant oak, my father, such a famous writer, and also a slightly less tall but nonetheless intimidating oak of my mother, who had been the only woman war correspondent in China during the Second World War. So the question was, how unlike Hartley Coleridge was I going to get out of that shadow if I wanted to be a writer myself? So to me, an Oakling is any uh, offspring of a famous person who wants to go into that profession, but particularly the writer offspring of a writer parent. And the most famous, I think, is Martin Amos. Yes, and look how well he's mm, done. Yeah, he um, he's done extremely well. I think Christopher Buckley um, is mm. at least as good a writer as his father was. There are some wonderful examples of Oaklings who have succeeded as well as many who failed. Uh, it's hard. I mean, there's some good parts. You grow up and you see your parents writing and you think, oh, that's actually a plausible way to make a living. And there are all these books in the house and interesting and visitors. Writers coming. Yeah, and exactly. writers coming. And writers. All those good things. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. But that feeling, my parents have already done it. And also, if I did it, I wouldn't be an exciting black sheep. I'm going to become a writer. You just be, It'd be like going into the family used car business. Your father, you talk about him being famous. One-tenth of the population used to tune in in the States to his quiz show, Information Please, um, during the, what, what decade? Started in the 30s. 30s, um, okay. Yeah, he was the MC. So this is the glory days of, of radio. He did it mm. for about a decade, and then for a little while it was on TV. But the great days were the radio days. So he had a... A sort of a celebrity panel, and then he also had a, a guest celebrity. The Marx Brothers were mm. frequent guests, and I remember him telling me about um, what happened when Harpo Marx mm. came. Well, of course, Harpo could actually talk, but his character in the F Marx Brothers films never said anything. He just squeaked a little horn and played his harp. Put his so knee up on your... Uh <laughs> That's true, too. But he didn't speak. So how are we going to have Harpo answer questions on a radio if he can't talk? Well, they designed questions that could be answered by playing snatches of music. So if it was some obscure term and what sport is um, this term uh, part of, well, he could play Take Me Out to the Ball Game um, on his harp. And then he also would simply um, squeak very loudly on his horn in order to drown out other people who were answering the question. But in those days, because the panelists didn't get money by answering correctly, the person who'd sent in the question got the money. Oh, yeah. There was absolutely no motivation to be correct. 
what what you're motivated to do is to be witty. Yes. Um, And therefore, instead of, you know, the the, the nervous contestants on Jeopardy who are, uh, you know, oh my God, if I get this right, I'll be able to pay off my mortgage. They're not really having a very good time. And we're having a good time only by sharing their anxiety. Mm. Um, But these contestants on information, please, God, they were so funny. And the listeners were absolutely wrapped with attention. So in one uh, case, my father had asked the question uh, to the men on his panel. Of course, the panel was 100% men. I'd like you now to close your eyes and see whether you can remember the color of your tie. So that's not something he would ever be able to do himself. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, one of his listeners was driving a car and heard it on the car radio. And closed his eyes obediently because in my father's mellifluous tones, you know, who could fail to obey Clifton Fadiman and crashed into a tree. This would not be a funny story if he'd been very badly injured. He wasn't, but uh, his car, I think, had an injured fender and he sued the sponsor of the show. And the great thing about this is that I, I still remember my father's tone of voice when he told this tale to my brother and me. It wasn't, oh, boy, that radio show was really fun until that damn lawsuit. It was pride because this was evidence of the reach of his influence. And how connected his listeners were to him. How connected. Yes, he felt poor. I must be a really charismatic guy. And he was right. His mellifluous mid-Atlantic accent. Yes. So my father said that he'd essentially learned English as if it were Sanskrit. Uh, have to remember that his parents, uh, who had emigrated from Russia, English was their second language. They spoke highly accented, ungrammatical English. And that's what he was raised with until he got to school, a series of good public schools, where he learned English as if it were a second language. And Nigel, I know you've heard my father speak online. If anyone is listening to this podcast afterwards, you should just go to YouTube or listen to, there's some audio tapes of my father on information, please, that you can uh, listen to online. And his voice is beyond patrician. When I think of the term mid-Atlantic, it doesn't mean some someplace along the Atlantic coast. For him, it's like the middle of the Atlantic in between Boston and London. Mm-hmm. He sounded so patrician he couldn't possibly be American. And in my view, only people who were born in Brooklyn and wanted to work really hard as if they weren't ended up sounding like my father. Well, the accent went perfectly with the wine and the books. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and many people assumed that he was from a patrician background, since yeah. Fadiman was conveniently ambiguous in his ethnic origins. A professor of his introduced him to Bennett Cerf. Yes. Of Random House. And he landed a gig translating two volumes of Nietzsche for That's the right. Modern Library. Yes. That's, that was right out, of, right out of university, right? Right out of college. And one of them is actually still in print, that mm-hmm. translation, in a Dover Thrift edition. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he, let's see, he needed to go to Europe in order to retrieve his first wife, who had run out off with either a count or a baron and I said well gosh don't you remember and he said I don't know which one is better in any case she had wait a sec his 
we're missing him getting married. Oh, he gotten married very young um, to uh, when he was either still in college or just out of college. His wife almost immediately ran off with this member of some identified category of European royalty. Mm-hmm. My father um, had to chase her to Paris. This was not my mother. This was my father's first wife, Polly, yeah, right. and needed to make enough money that he could afford third-class passage over to France. And so he translated these two works of Nietzsche while nursing warm beers, he'd still never tasted wine, uh, in the ship's bar, uh, finished them both by the time he got to Paris, um, sent them in, got money wired, and (laughs) managed, managed to retrieve his wife and also tasted wine for the first time. So what happened to the wife? Did she? Uh, they, they, they split, obviously. They but. eventually split. They split in the late forties, and he married my mother. Okay. And yet, even though that first marriage ended up not working, he was always grateful to Polly for, among other things, introducing him to wine. Because mm-hmm. once they'd gotten back together again to celebrate, they had lunch. Not in a very romantic place. It was in the luncheonette at a French department store. Um, (laughs) But she, who'd already been there for, I don't know, a week or two, Mm. ordered a wine, a cheap white grave. And it was a hot August day, and the wine was chilled, and he took one sip. And it was prohibition back in the United States. He'd never tasted wine. And in that moment, when he was, of course... A flush with romance because he had successfully won back Polly's heart. He also tasted the liquid that he would love for the rest of his life and wrote about it as if it was not the discovery of something new, but the recognition of something that he always had but never had the chance to experience before, something already inside him that he recognized. That's operatic. It was pretty damned operatic. Uh, And that's how he felt about wine for the rest of his life. The one love that never disappointed, the one love to whom he would always be faithful and would always be faithful to him. Here's another very cool thing that he did. He put together a folder of a hundred neatly typed book ideas and pitched that to Simon & Schuster, and they went for it. This is when he was... 28. Yeah, actually, it was earlier than 28, because by the time he was 28, he'd actually ascended to the position of being editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster. So he graduated uh, when he was 21, and he then went to graduate school at Columbia, and was not hired on the Columbia faculty because the chair of the English department said, I'm sorry, we can take only one Jew this year, and it's Mr. Trilling, and that was his best friend, Lionel Trilling, who became a famous Columbia professor of English and a very great uh, critic. And that was Uh, crushing, too. Completely crushing. He Mm. left Columbia. He got a job Mm. teaching at a high school, Ethical Culture High School. He taught great books, night classes. Um, He was also writing book reviews. And then he got a job, sort of a lowly job, at Simon & Schuster, but that he got by bringing this a folder of a hundred things that Simon Schuster should do. Um, he was hired, and then by the time he was 28, was the editor-in-chief. Yeah, that's very impressive. It is. And then it, this is a bit weird, though. I guess he got to the top 
And then at, you'd think he would stay there for a while, but no, at 29 he went to the New Yorker. What happened well, he to was, Simon & Schuster? Think, I think there was a bit of an overlap. There was an overlap for a while between Simon & Schuster and the New Yorker. There was also an overlap between the New Yorker and Information, please. Uh, he never had just one full-time job at a time. Remember, he'd put himself through Columbia by, you know, he's a Phi Beta Kappa member who was also working 40 hours a week and sometimes spending three hours on the subway. Um, right. He could just fit more into 24 hours than most other people. Right. Uh, but he also liked new things. So he was constantly interested in new challenges. So, for example, after 10 years at The New Yorker, he decided, okay, I'm repeating myself, and uh, I still love reading books, but I'm not really saying anything new in my reviews. Time for someone new. Goodbye. And the great Edmund uh, Wilson. Wilson took over. That's right. Yeah, he um, he got a lot of praise, but he still felt himself, and it's the title of one of your one-word chapters, counterfeit. He felt himself a counterfeit. And Jacques Berzin said that self-deprecation was his one irritating trait. Yes, I completely agree with that. Jacques Berzin had been... A friend of his at Columbia, he and Lionel Trilling, and um, those, they had been a kind of a literary uh, trio uh, mm. together when they were undergraduates. My father always did feel that he was counterfeit. He felt, even though he had become far better educated than virtually anyone around him, he knew. Um, three or four languages really well, and then a bunch, sort of. Um, he had this marvelous palate for wine. He was enormously entertaining and charming and sociable, but he felt that his origins, the fact that he'd grown up as the son of poor Jewish immigrants, um, made him counterfeit throughout his life. And, uh, it was a little hard for me to get because I felt, well, gee, you know, how about these guys that you feel are the real thing who inherited their wealth and they went to Andover and then they went to Harvard. Um, when you're having an intellectual conversation with them, what makes them better equipped or qualified or deserving to talk about Shakespeare than you. You know Shakespeare much better. I mean, they, they, they didn't, they weren't born having read all of Shakespeare's plays, and yet he felt that there was something they had that he would never have, mm. um, and that he was always pretending and in any moment was going to get booted out the back door of the gentleman's club. So, yeah, he had an inferiority complex. Yes, although he also had a very high opinion of himself. Yeah, and that, often, went together. that often goes, to, goes I agree. together. Yeah. I agree. You mentioned anxiety, humiliation, yep. and shame. All and those it, things. You know, it's funny because in, in, in a way, that's what I, not obviously not to the same extent, but I felt a little bit ashamed telling people that uh, the Lifetime Reading Plan uh, was really influential to me. Oh, you were ashamed? I well, hope now you feel proud. I, no, no, it was, especially when I was talking to academics and people who, uh, right. you know, I felt, 
not that I was ashamed necessarily. It's the middle brow version. It's the middle brow. That's and right. These these friends of mine would, uh, you know, and I didn't bring it up all the time. I did occasionally just to to stir things up a bit, but they looked down their nose on it. That's right. And it was as you say. This is what the masses did. This well, wasn't what the educated class did because I suppose they all read these books as a matter of course. But of course we know that they didn't and that all the people that you were ashamed to tell that you were getting guidance from the Lifetime Reading Plan probably knew the books in the Lifetime Reading Plan so much less well than you did. Mm -hmm. Just like him. Just like him. Hmm. He enjoyed swearing, and horseshit was his favorite swear word. Yeah, I always figured it was horseshit rather than bullshit, because horses, of course, appeared an awful lot in Victorian novels, which he knew extremely well. But bulls and cows, gosh, you know, they were off on farms, and I'm not sure he ever uh, visited a farm in his 95-year lifetime. But um, swear words were only for his close friends and, and family. Yeah, he would never he, he was, do an imprint. Oh never, gosh, no. he had very uh, strong ideas about civility mm. and what kinds of things were appropriate in what circumstances. You don't write much about your mum, but you do write that uh, on one trip to Europe, she mailed samples of toilet paper from each country for you to sample. Yeah, uh, I think that is absolutely brilliant. So yeah, I. my brother and I <laughs> were at Camp Snippetuit one summer, the actual name of a camp in Massachusetts, and my parents took a trip to Europe. It was the first time that um, my mother had ever been away from us for any uh, stretch of time, and she sent, as um, they both wrote us frequent letters, but she knew what kids were interested in. She thought, gosh, isn't it interesting that here I am now in Scotland, and the toilet paper is brown and scratchy. It's just not absorbent at all. Like porridge. Um, exactly. I think I'll I'll put a piece of toilet paper in as I write a you know a letter from some fancy hotel in Edinburgh, um, and so each from then on each of her envelopes had uh, a piece of toilet paper from a different country. She understood children very well, um, and she also was a very unembarrassable person, mm. unlike my father, who never would have sent us toilet paper or even mentioned it. I think it's just a lovely little anecdote to, to describe what kind of person she was. I'm glad that you liked mm. it. Um, she, she was a marvelous person. She was less worried about money than your father and mm -hmm. didn't put herself down. That is right. That is exactly right. Mm -hmm. Although she hadn't grown up with money during most of her life. Her father had been a, a bank executive in uh, Utah, but lost most of his money right before the Depression and the rest during. And so uh, from the age of eight or nine on, she was raised with probably as little money as my father was. But it wasn't a matter just of money. It was a matter of class. And I think her family felt that they were, they had no money, but they were still upper middle class. Whereas my father, even when he got uh, money, felt he was still lower middle class. That's kind of tragic. It is. It is. 
I love how you, you talk about his life of conspicuous inaction. <laughs> his chief physical exertions were lifting pins and pulling corks. Yeah, he was the wrong age to serve in either the First or the Second World Wars. Um, he said on his resume that his main hobbies were wine and the avoidance of exercise. It's remarkable that he lived to 95. My mother was a woman of action. She liked being outside. She, when she gardened, she would haul 50-pound bags of manure. She'd been a war correspondent in China. She liked doing stuff, whereas my father would have been perfectly happy to stay in his library all day long reading and never go outdoors. Hmm. I love this too. Here, maybe you can read. It's it's not very long, but you uh, identify words that he disliked. He made lists of words and phrases he particularly disliked, many of them with roots in business or advertising. Viable, parameters, time frame, feedback, breakthrough, target area, quality time, in-depth, cutting edge, counterproductive, in terms of, in the context of, crispy, crunchy, zesty, have a good one, there you go, you better believe it. Here, here. Yeah, he, he hated what television was doing to English. And he felt that it was tragic that young people were learning English by listening to television rather than by reading books, which, of course, would teach them, for the most part, very good English. You mentioned that uh, in older age he was quite open-minded, and uh, I got this volume or edition as well of the Lifetime Reading Plan, the new Lifetime Reading Plan, uh, in which he collaborated with a, an Asian yes, cultural specialist. That's exactly right. So the new Lifetime Reading Plan, it came out when he was in his 80s, mm-hmm. um, and it's still in print, and it's a slightly enlarged version of the original. A lot of those dead white yeah. males are still around, but also mm-hmm. a lot of women, and they're writers from Asia and Africa and Latin America. Uh, and his collaborator uh, wrote the essays about many, though not all, of the new writers, but it was my father's um, strong desire that the list be opened up. And most old people you know probably are getting narrower and narrower. They want everything to be the same as it was before. They're scared of novelty. But my father was not only letting women and writers of color into the lifetime reading plan. He was also trying wines from New Zealand and Chile. Uh, He was opening himself up to all kinds of new things, and that's why he was incredibly fun to be with, even when he was a very old man. Mm. He widened rather than narrowed. Toward the end of the book, you admit that it, uh, you finally admit that you, you, you don't like wine. Yeah, I don't hate wine, but I sure don't love it. And mm. given the uh, ardent love that my father had for wine, I always felt that this was a terrible flaw. I, I'd followed my father into the world of loving books and language, and like him, I'd become a 
a writer, uh, but his other love, wine, I kept thinking, well, I'm still educable. It might still happen. It never did. Wine always tasted too strong to me. And so after my father's death, several years after, I finally decided to find out whether there might be a biological reason. Um, I got this idea because a friend of mine had said that the dislike of cilantro is largely genetic, and I thought, oh gosh, I dislike cilantro, and my husband loves cilantro, and he always says, but it tastes so good. How could you keep saying it tastes like old soap? Well, it turns out it wasn't just my poor taste, it was my genes. So I went to a couple of taste scientists and I took some genetic tests and I described these all in the book. And indeed, there were some very cut and dried biological reasons why I don't like wine very much, particularly wine that is high in alcohol. And I also have a uh, some genetic variants that make me extra sensitive to bitterness, particularly bitterness in alcohol. And when I found out this stuff, in a way it was great because I was off the hook. I was like somebody who doesn't read much and then finds out that she's dyslexic and instead of just stupid, well, that might um, be a good thing to find out. And so in a way, I was happy. It wasn't my fault. I wasn't simply an uncivilized person. But in a way, it was sad because I knew there was no hope. I'd never love wine. <laughs> that doesn't make me unable to love the subject of wine. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating, beautiful subject. And by learning to understand what wine meant to my father, I learned to understand him better. So that was an even better gift than being able to uncork a bottle and enjoy it mm -hmm. um, as much as he had. Just finally, what does it feel like to bring him back to life? Well, when I was writing this book, much of which was done in a really tiny cabin, uh, with no internet and no landline and no cell service. So it was really just him and me. I really did feel that he was there, not in any kind of mystical or spiritual way. Um, I'm no more religious than he was. But nonetheless, really remembering the sound of his voice, really feeling his presence, looking at his handwriting as I reread all of his letters, looking through hundreds of family photographs with no distractions and no static and no interference from everything else. He really was there. So for me, it wasn't really the act of writing about him to bring him back to life, but eliminating everything else from my life so that he was there when I wrote. And if I succeeded at all in bringing him to life for other people, um, I would feel really happy. Uh, there are a lot of quotes from his essays because almost all of his books are out of print. So where else are people going to be able to read those marvelous, elegantly crafted, witty sentences? It was fun to be able to quote him. Although I don't want to leave you with the impression that I view this as an entirely positive book about my father. There's so much in it that he would have hated that one other reason I could have written it only after his death was because it would have hurt him, which I wouldn't have wanted to do, but I wouldn't have wanted to leave out all the negative parts. 
gosh, if you're writing about anybody, but particularly your parent, if you put in all only the good stuff, what's the point? No, no, it's bullshit if you just whitewash the character. That's exactly right. So there's a lot of stuff he would absolutely have hated. But like what, though? He, uh, he was a chauvinist, Yeah, he would have hated the chapter. And he was insecure. Yeah, he would have hated the chapter in which I talked about how much he hated being a Jew. Mm. Gosh, he would have hated that. Yeah. I think the thing that would have upset him most was that I revealed uh, that he had been unfaithful to my mother, and he'd managed to keep that a secret for decades. Mm. So, gosh, there's a lot of stuff he would not have wanted me to put in, mm -hmm. so it never would have occurred to me to write it while he was alive. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's not a daddy dearest. It is mm. a... Uh, for the most part, a loving book. Uh, no, I shouldn't say for the most part. All of it is loving. Yeah. Not all of it is uncritical. All of us who've lost parents that we love do what we can to keep those memories alive. And I was really fortunate that I had the excuse of this book to do it just a little bit more carefully than most people get to do. If there's anything you want people to remember about your dad, did you ever call him dad or father? Daddy. Daddy. Okay. Yeah, a word that I didn't use throughout the book because I'm 65 years old now. Uh, I'd be infantilizing both myself and the relationship if I'd said daddy rather than my father throughout mm -hmm. the book. But yeah, I called him daddy. So is there anything that people should take away from this book about him? Or about, about the... the the years that he worked in the, in the book publishing world? Well, I think his love of words and his love of wine came from the same um, root, and that was his ability to take hedonistic pleasure in life. I think people who are trying to preserve the world of books and language and print that he was immersed in his entire life now are getting so anxious that they forget what books are really for is to give us pleasure. They're not broccoli. They're Haagen-Dazs. It's not that we and our children should read our books. Ew, that sounds like medicine. It's gosh, we want to. They are delicious. They are exciting. Books should be things that make you stay up till three o'clock in the morning because you can't put them down. And then when you wake up in the morning, you say, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. Just the way you might find yourself hungover the night after you'd maybe drank a little bit too much wine. We shouldn't think of them as ought, we should think mm. of them as want. And that's how he felt about books and wine for his whole life. Well, it's a thrill to meet you. He has kept himself alive through you. He's immortal through you. Oh, thank you. And uh, best of luck with the book. Well, thank you so much, Nigel. It's meant so much to me to talk with you because unlike most of the people who've interviewed me about this book, you not only knew who he was, but you had been guided by some of his work yourself. And that's incredibly moving to me. So thank you for letting me have this conversation with you. It's a pleasure. And the name of the book is? 
The Wine Lover's Daughter, a memoir by Anne Fadiman, published by FSG in the United States. Anywhere else in the world yet? Not yet. Well, maybe someone's listening in Europe. Well, let's hope. Thanks very much again. Thank you, Nigel.